Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an infectious disease expert provides important information about the symptoms of COVID-19. We know that the initial symptoms overlap a lot with flu and other respiratory infections. For about 80% of people, if not more, those symptoms will remain mild. A doctor specializing in integrative medicine has some ideas for healthy ways to keep calm during crises. Take a nice deep belly breath. Take the longest inhale possible. Even as I'm saying this, many people are focusing on their breath and not on the words. And a doctor with expertise in geriatrics explains why older people may be especially vulnerable to coronavirus. The assumption that we all have to make is that everyone has the virus even if they don't have symptoms. All that plus a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn some healthy ways to keep calm during a crisis. Then, a doctor specializing in geriatrics will talk about the special vulnerabilities of people who are older and what we can all do to help. But first, an infectious disease expert provides important information about the symptoms of COVID-19 and what you should do if you're feeling ill. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In this segment, we'll go over in detail the symptoms of COVID-19 and what to do if you or a loved one are feel feeling ill. With me by telephone is Dr. Katie Anderson. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Upstate and an infectious disease epidemiologist. Thank you for making time to talk with HealthLink on air, Dr. Anderson. Thank you for having me. Now let's start with the symptoms of COVID-19. What are the ones that are most important to know about? Well, COVID-19 is obviously a new virus for us, and we're still evolving in our understanding of it. But what we do know right now, and the good news for for all of us is that it does seem to be, for most people, a relatively mild virus. We know that the initial symptoms overlap a lot with flu and other respiratory infections, so people can experience fever, cough, shortness of breath. But for about 80% of people, if not more, those symptoms will remain mild. It's only for a, a fraction of people that the symptoms can progress, and you may require hospitalization or possibly ICU-level care to support your breathing. Well, that's good to know that 80% symptoms are going to be mild. So can you diagnose this based simply on the symptoms? In other words, if you have a fever and shortness of breath and a cough, should you just assume you have COVID-19? Unfortunately, the symptoms overlap a lot with other respiratory viruses. And in fact, as this started to emerge throughout the United States, we were still winding up our flu season, which was somewhat dramatic this year as well. So a challenge is that when you're seeing somebody in the emergency room in the doctor's office, you can't tell that they have COVID-19 just based upon their respiratory symptoms alone, which is one of the reasons why we really need available testing for everyone. However, given the seriousness of this pandemic and the rate at which it's spreading through communities, we do recommend that if anyone is experiencing respiratory symptoms or a fever, that they treat it as if they have COVID-19 in terms of isolating themselves washing their hands and trying to prevent spread to other people. So what if someone has a headache or a runny nose, you know, symptoms of a cold? Do they need to think, oh, wait, this could be COVID? Or, or I mean, it's people still get colds this time of year, right? People still get colds and a whole variety of other types of viruses. And again, what I really want to reassure people is to go back to that 80%. So if you start to get a headache, if you start to get a fever, if you start to get a cough, take a breath. For most people, even if this is COVID and we don't know that it is, could be another virus, for most people, this is really a mild self-limited illness. You'll get through it and you'll get better. It's only if your symptoms get to be more severe. If you have a high fever, if your fever continues for a couple of days, if you're having difficulty breathing or other serious symptoms that you need to stop think and go get yourself checked out immediately. Can physicians predict uh, among patients, since 80% of the cases are generally mild, can physicians predict the other 20% that are going to need more intensive care? So that's the big question right now, um, particularly because 
we worry that case numbers will increase. We aren't able to predict with 100% accuracy who's going to progress and have a severe outcome, but there are certain populations that do seem to be at increased risk of severe disease with COVID-19. So it's clear that individuals older than 80 years have a higher risk of progression to requiring ICU-level care, for example, and also a higher risk of death from COVID-19. It's clear that individuals older than 60, so 60 to 80 years old, also have an increased risk of severe disease, but at a lower risk than the older population 80 years and above. Individuals with underlying lung disease, diabetes, heart disease, and immunocompromised state, so individuals with lymphoma or leukemia, individuals who take steroids, for example, they're also at increased risk of severe disease with COVID-19. So these are populations that, number one, need to be trying to reduce their risk of infection at all costs, and number two, need to be monitored very closely if they do become infected with COVID-19 for progression to more advanced disease. Now, I want to ask you about the time frame. Um, we've heard a lot in the news about 14-day quarantines. Is that because you're infectious for 14 days? Or talk to me about how that lays out. We're still trying to figure out the total duration of time that a person, person is infectious with COVID-19. Right now, the publications are seeming to, to suggest that it's on the order of seven days that you're infectious. The 14-day quarantine is really about when most people will likely develop symptoms if they're infected. On average, we think that people develop symptoms between five to seven days after exposure, but that 95% of people will get symptoms within those first 14 days. So it's really trying to say, stay home, monitor yourself, quarantine, and if you don't have symptoms by the end of 14 days, you're probably in the clear. So if you have symptoms you're infectious, you could spread this to other people, correct? It's not really clear. Um, there's some evidence that, concerningly, that you might be infectious before you have symptoms. And then there's also evidence that the clinical course or the amount of time that you're sick with COVID-19 may be somewhat prolonged. And what, what I mean by that is that fever and cough may go on for 10 to 12 days. This was seen in Washington with the first case that presented there, and this was also reported in China and Singapore and Hong Kong. But we don't necessarily think that as individuals are on day 12 of illness that they're necessarily infectious at the same rate, but this is something that we're studying and will have implications for how we manage patients in the hospital, obviously. Are we sure about how it's transmitted? We're confident at this point that the dominant mode of spread is droplet, so sneezing or coughing, and also uh, contamination of environmental surfaces. And what I mean by that is someone coughs into their hand, they touch the doorknob, and someone comes right behind them, touches the doorknob, and then touches their face. That seems clear. There's some other modes of transmission that seem possible, but we don't understand very well yet. So, for example, in some studies in Asia, they did find the virus in stool, and there are some GI symptoms like diarrhea that people can experience with COVID-19, suggesting that possibly there could be fecal transmission, but we don't understand that very well yet. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Katie Anderson, an assistant professor of both medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and also an infectious disease epidemiologist. And we're talking about the coronavirus, the disease that causes COVID-19, I also want to let listeners know that an epidemiologist studies uh, how diseases spread. Is that correct? That's right. So I want to ask your advice for people who are starting to experience symptoms. What's, what's the best advice for what they need to do? Yeah, thank you for that question because I think it's actually a critical one for us all to be discussing as COVID-19 starts to spread in our communities, and there is understandably concern and some anxiety about that. Um, so if someone begins to develop symptoms, and by symptoms, again, we're talking about the relatively vague symptoms of cough, shortness of breath, other flu-like symptoms like sore throat and runny nose, maybe a fever. Again, we'd ask that you remember that most of the time these infections are mild. So if you're not experiencing an illness that otherwise in the non-COVID-19 world would bring you to the emergency room, we ask that you don't go to the emergency room. This is a critical message that we want to get out to people because we're concerned that as cases build up, our emergency rooms could get overwhelmed. So if you're not seriously ill, we ask you to take a deep breath, 
call your primary care if your level of concern is enough that you feel like you need to reach out to medical professionals and only go to the emergency room if you're seriously ill, if you're having significant difficulty breathing or other symptoms that are significantly concerning that you feel like you need emergency care. So I understand that many people may not have a primary care physician. And so for those individuals, I would ask them to pay attention to opportunities that are evolving already throughout Syracuse and across the state for alternate sites of testing and triage. We hope to be developing hotlines to facilitate triage and routing these patients to where they can receive care if they don't require emergency care and possibly other innovative means of trying to help them access the healthcare system while keeping our emergency rooms clear for the people who really need it. So if people have symptoms that match up to this and maybe they go to get tested, what do they do in the meantime while they're waiting for the results of that test? So currently, as, as everyone is aware, there's a shortage of, of testing, which means that there are some delays in getting the results. It may be on the order of a couple of days. And currently, we're recommending that if someone is not seriously ill enough to need to come into the hospital, that they can still, that they can go home and wait for their results at home. What they should do during that time is self-quarantine. And by that, we mean you're not going out into the community. You're trying to protect transmission. Um, you're not going out into the community. You're trying to prevent transmission to your family members in your home, possibly isolating yourself in a specific room and trying to uh, disinfect and decontaminate the home as best you can. What measures will help care for someone who's riding out this virus at home? Our guidelines for management of patients with COVID-19 are still evolving because this is a new virus. And so some of the things that we're reading about um, as possible practices now may change in the future. But right now, some of the things that are coming out in the media and physicians across the country are trying to understand what is the good evidence and how do we go forward. Um, and physicians across the country are trying to sift through a lot of the anecdotal information that's coming out from Washington, from Europe, as physicians are trying to find best practices for managing this virus. There do seem to be some recommendations, again, not evidence-based. By that, I mean not in peer-reviewed literature, not from clinical trials. There are some findings, however, suggesting, as you say, maybe ibuprofen is something that may be associated with an increased risk of severe disease, um, possibly avoiding the use of steroids in the hospital, for example. Uh, but these are things that are relatively anecdotal at this time and are the topics of active discussion amongst the physicians who will be caring for these patients. So fluids and rest, I mean, that's what I hear for flu. Is that what is kind of recommended to keep people comfortable with this? So given that most people will have mild illnesses with this, mild respiratory illnesses, you can manage it as you would the flu. Stay home from work. Absolutely stay home from work. Um, try to avoid transmission to other people and manage your symptoms. Fluids and rest, Tylenol for a headache, cough syrup if you have a cough. I would caution people, however, to be watching for potential progression to a more severe illness. So shortness of breath chest pain, concerning symptoms such as that, which may indicate that while your illness had started out relatively mild, not requiring emergency care, that that may change over time. So those would be signals that perhaps you do need um, to get to a hospital, uh, shortness of breath if you're getting worse with this. What does the typical course look like if you're the 80% that get a mild version of this? How soon till you start feeling better? It does seem that COVID-19, even in possibly milder cases, may have a somewhat prolonged course. So as I mentioned, that first case in Washington, other case reports from Asia suggest that the fever and cough can go on for several days. So it may be a somewhat prolonged course, but I can reassure people that it should be self-limited. This is not a chronic illness. This is not something that should go on for months, but it may be one to two weeks of feeling relatively poorly with a persistent cough, possibly even intermittent fevers. The main thing we would worry about with COVID-19 is that it seems like the majority of complications for patients that are in the hospital is progression to profound respiratory distress, which means difficulty breathing, difficulty with getting enough oxygen into your blood that would require that you need to go on a ventilator. So the main warning sign that we would watch for would be things related to issues with your breathing. So profound shortness of breath, 
changes in the person's mental status, so increased confusion, chest pain, warning signs like that. But a person who's recovering at home, uh, even though they, it, it may take several days or weeks before they feel better, they still need to self-isolate from family members to try to not spread this to family, right? As best they can, they should isolate themselves from family members to try to prevent spread. So can you explain the difference between self-isolation and social distancing? Self-isolation is what you should do if you're feeling sick, whether or not you are confirmed to have COVID-19 or not. But if you have respiratory symptoms, if you have a fever, self-isolation means that you are keeping yourself in place in your home, trying to minimize contact with others, uh, both within and outside of your home. So that means not going to work, certainly. It means not going out to the grocery store, not mixing with the public, and then within your house, trying to isolate yourself in a specific room if you can, disinfecting your home as you can to try to prevent onward transmission. So self-isolation is when you're sick and you're trying to prevent spread of COVID or whatever other virus to other people. So social distancing is the new norm now for all of us in the United States and, in fact, for most parts of the world. Social distancing means we're trying to minimize contact with other people to try to prevent and slow transmission of this virus. It means that schools are closing. It means that people should be working from home as much as they possibly can. It means we should stop traveling, stop going to the gym, stop gathering in crowds really of any size, stop having play dates. Importantly, what it doesn't mean, because I think as we think forward to the coming weeks and months of this pandemic, we think of um, social distancing as meaning we need to just stay inside of our homes. And I think that that's a recipe for unhappiness and increased anxiety. So we can go for walks. You can and should get out of your house and walk around. You can even walk with friends so long as you maintain a distance between you. We recommend six feet. You can play tennis, for example. You can and should keep in contact with the people you love. Use things like FaceTime, Skype, so that you can see the people that you love, lean on each other, and support each other. So social distancing is what we're all doing now, and it's our new normal. We need to be thinking about the ways that it can be bearable and protect our mental health. And exercise and leaning in our support systems is going to be central to that. Well, that's important information. Thank you to Dr. Katie Anderson for her expertise on the coronavirus. She's an assistant professor of medicine at Upstate and an infectious disease epidemiologist. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's Health Link on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, in case you're feeling anxious, Dr. Koshal Nanavati has some advice. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith for HealthLink on Air. One of the doctors of family medicine at Upstate also serves as director of integrative medicine. And during this ongoing coronavirus crisis, I'm really appreciative that Dr. Koshal Nanavati has made time for HealthLink on Air. Thank you, Dr. Nanavati. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I want to let listeners know that your email signature says, inhale peace, exhale stress. And you really seem to practice what you preach when it comes to stress management. Um, especially now, I think maybe some of us could use some help staying calm. And I'm going to ask for your advice about that. But first, some basics. Um, let's talk about the facts about this virus that are most important for us to know. Well, and I think, you know, you guys have had uh, experts on and people have information at the fingertip for the virus itself and how it's spreading and where it's spreading and all those things. But the fundamentals of what we can do, so a lot of people get anxious and worried about you know, what's going to happen. If we bring it back to, okay, what can I do in this moment? I think a couple of the major pearls that are consistent that have come up throughout the world includes proper hand washing and proper hand washing techniques. And even if somebody just Googled that, the you know, bottom line is, you know, washing your hands with soap and water uh, for at least 20 seconds and doing a diligent job of, of uh, washing your hands. And then the other piece is the social distancing. And so people wonder, well, you know, what does that mean? And what's the big deal about six feet? And the thought is that based on at least information that we have, um, that six feet distance or two-meter distance 
is about the distance uh, beyond which generally if somebody were speaking or uh, droplets or air particles were you know, uh, coming out, at that point they would hit the ground or would have hit the ground by then. So that's the reason for doing the six-foot uh, social distancing. But I think if people washed hands regularly um, and diligently and were able to maintain social distance, those are two of the best steps that we can take as a community to reduce the potential to uh, allow the virus to spread. And I just want to be clear, what you're talking about applies to everyone. You're not talking about sick people. You're talking about healthy people. Doing I am, this. because you know the thing that we don't know is who's a carrier. And so there are many people in the community. I think this morning I heard a percentage that nearly 86% of people uh, you know, may... Uh, who are carriers aren't symptomatic. And so the point is, if you're unsure, in either case, I think, you know, the fact that this virus is a pandemic, the fact that at this point it's in every state of the United States, which means, uh, you know, it's in our communities, all of us can practice these tips of hygiene, which are good to practice in general anyway, uh, especially even during, you know, this time, but we think about flu season, etc. cetera. Um, and these are general good hygiene tips. So in terms of staying calm, I mean, just the word pandemic sort of is scary. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is an unprecedented time, at least for many of us in our lifetimes, and especially for those uh, who have, you know, generally lived in the United States or not lived in other regions of the world where they have other types of stressors going on as well. And so the word lets us know that it's everywhere. Uh, and this is something where we don't have a vaccine. And while they're working on treatments, we don't have a definitive treatment yet. And so the best thing we can do is practice you know, prevention and avoidance as much as possible of uh, the virus itself. And so when we say things like that, people get nervous. Oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen? Can I, you know, uh, be near somebody? Can I go outside? Can I go for a walk? These types of things. And the reality is that, you know, the virus is spread. Uh, we think possibly airborne, but definitely through particles. And so it's a matter of practicing good hygiene measures. Um, and, again, anxiety often is the result of kind of, a potential or a worry about something that might happen. And whenever that happens, the best thing a person can do, uh, and I had a conversation with my staff as well, was take a nice deep belly breath. Right? Take the longest inhale possible and then slowly breathe out and even take even longer to breathe out. But if you really focus on taking the longest inhale possible and focusing on breathing out slowly, 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 even as I'm saying this, many people are focusing on their breath and not on the worry. And so what it does is taking even just what we call a pattern interrupt breath, uh, it breaks the pattern of thinking, it breaks the pattern of anxiety from spiraling. And that's what tends to happen is when we start to get anxious, the emotions spiral. And actually in our brain, the prefrontal cortex that actually helps us with some of our logic, that actually doesn't get a chance to get activated. So... When we take a deep breath and we calm ourselves down, that part of the brain can get engaged again, and that helps us to use reason, use logic, and to be able to then think about, okay, in this situation, what is in my control? And then if we do the things that are in our control, then what it at least allows us to do is do the best that we can do. And, you know, that may mean, you know, making a decision of whether or not to go uh, on a cruise, on a trip, which some people are still doing, at this time, that's not practical. Even as you're describing that, and I take the breath myself, you can sort of feel that little, that clinch in your torso sort of let loose a little. Yeah, and actually when people, we have good science behind this, so we know that even 10 minutes of just taking nice, deep breathing and just letting your mind even drift uh, we know that cortisol, the stress hormone, goes down. Well, cortisol can affect uh, the weakening of the immune system. 
uh, has an impact on blood pressure, blood sugar, that type of stuff, and inflammation in the body. And so just 10 minutes of brief belly breathing, deep breathing like I described earlier, actually lowers the cortisol levels. Now, we're breathing anyway, so why not use it to our advantage, right? That also helps serotonin, which is the chemical that's benefited by antidepressant medications like Prozac, so your mood can be enhanced. Uh, serotonin helps the gut motility, so digesting, so nutrients coming in, toxins going out, so our body gets healthier. Uh, it actually boosts melatonin, which people think about for sleep, but that can actually boost your immune system as well. So even that helps. And then dopamine, which is our feel-good chemical, goes up just with 10 minutes of deep breathing. And our fight or flight, our anxiety response, adrenaline, actually calms down. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati about coping with the coronavirus or the stress that comes with the coronavirus pandemic. Now, some people have anxiety to, be, to begin with. Um, they're diagnosed with anxiety. But during this time, would you say it's normal that everyone's sort of feeling a little anxious? I think it's very normal for us to be anxious about something that's so uncertain and evolving by, you know, the hour, if not the minute, uh, you know, around the world and definitely in our country, uh, in our state, and even in our county. And so, you know, not all anxiety, not all stress, not all, uh, you know, depression uh, has to be thought of as uh, it's a disease and a pathology and, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? Uh, the angst that comes with this state of affairs as we have it today actually is, should be actually utilized by a person. Think about it as uh, a red flag that goes up, that if I'm worried, okay, so then why am I worried? Uh, because there's something that we don't really have a sense of or a finger on or control over, then what can I do about it? Well, right now, the best things we can do is to uh, you know, do the social distancing, uh, to try to be consistent with the people that we come into contact with, and, you know, to heed the advice of the experts um, and our uh, healthcare leaders who are encouraging people not to go out and to be in social gatherings, social environments where multiple people are there. Uh, and even if you're somebody who is meeting with a couple of people, but then you go and meet a couple of other people, and then you go and meet a couple of other people, you know, these are all contacts. And because we don't really know who's a carrier, uh, it's not something to panic about. It's just something to be practical about. I mean, in many ways, this affords us an opportunity to, uh, you know, be at home with our intimate ones. I mean, children are home from school. Uh, uh, many people that are, are working are having to be working from home or to be at home. Uh, and it's devastating in terms of, you know, statistics like one in five family members have a person who is at this time either working from home or without a job. Uh, and those types of, you know, statistics are worrisome, uh, but we can also look at the opportunity of time shared uh, and use it as a bonding type of time. I think some things people can do uh, beyond the deep breathing and meditation is actually, you know, do activities together, whether they be creative. Uh, we can also take this opportunity. I've seen things like people writing letters uh, to loved ones and relatives or giving them a call, connecting, uh, or even volunteering to try to help uh, those in the community that might be at higher risk or uh, ill and not able to get outside so that we can actually use this as an opportunity to support each other, to support the community, uh, and I think in that way, it also helps us to feel better and more positive at a time where there's a lot of negative feeling. Now, the gyms are closed, the fitness centers, but that doesn't mean you can't exercise outdoors or yeah. go, go for a walk or go to a park. Right. And again, you know, don't go. I think somebody had mentioned that, you know, they were going to do things like, you know, a Tai Chi class outdoors and things like that. The point is, don't gather in groups, uh, and as I think it was mentioned a couple of days ago, don't gather in groups of more than 10 people. So don't necessarily attend a class outside, but you can go for a walk with, you know, your loved one or a couple of you, uh, you know, even within the home. There are many things we can do in terms of just our own body weight. If people have stairs in a house, even just climbing uh, the stairs is an exercise. Walking in place is an exercise. 
doing things like crunches or, uh, you know, even uh, looking up a yoga video or Tai Chi. Those are all things that we can do within the home, especially with the media and technology that we have available. Uh, and actually some of the distributors of different types of media have made it so that uh, at this time people don't have to worry about a cost burden uh, to be able to access the web or Internet or information that's available online. Now, I think some people are tempted to turn to alcohol when they're feeling stress. Is that something that can calm a person, or do you Well, so the thing about that is that, you know, that becomes a, what we would say as a maladaptive coping mechanism. So, you know, alcohol is a depressant. And so when somebody's feeling anxious and then they, you know, use alcohol or overuse alcohol, the problem is initially they may feel like, oh, I feel a relaxation. But the mood impact isn't the healthiest. The physical and physiological impact isn't the healthiest. So this is actually a time where people can actually take the time to prepare a nice salad, you know, with multiple colors, um, and take time to even, you know, cook together or spend time together. Uh, I know many people have been ordering food from local restaurants to try to support them. Uh, you know, as your finances permit, if you want to do that, that's fine also. Uh, but, you know, sharing meals together versus... You know, families where people have been kind of eat as you can, catch as you can, catch each other as you can. This is an opportunity for us to actually be able to spend some time together uh, and community members to be able to actually take that time. So I would say smoking, alcohol, uh, you know, any type of uh, illicit substance use. Uh, people have asked, well, you know, should I be smoking marijuana? Again, what we know about uh, even that is smoking is not the the healthiest approach uh, for that. Even though uh, CBD and those things have been legalized right now, using nutrition, using exercise, uh, focusing on the things that you can do something about within your own life, within your family's life, um, even thinking one step beyond to think about how can I help in the community that wouldn't put you know me or others at risk, right? Thinking about our community as a whole. And then the idea of using that breath as a means of calming. You know, even while we've been talking, people have been breathing. How many of us have actually taken the time to take a nice deep belly breath while we've been having this conversation? Uh, it's something that we can do all the time. What do you recommend for someone who normally has no trouble sleeping, gets a good night's sleep, but nowadays is struggling to, you know, not toss and turn all night. How do you get a good night's sleep when you're worried? So I think what's important is before going to bed, the routine that people have. If you're watching the TV and the news right before you go to bed, uh, that's going to put you in a stressed state. Uh, and so, you know, some people use journaling. Others will actually take 10 minutes at bedtime. So, you know, I have patients sometimes take 10 minutes in the morning to do the deep breathing and set their intention for the day uh, so that they can think about how I can be the best version of myself today, what can I do to help myself but also to help others uh, and to bring peace and joy and contentment uh, to my life and to the life of others. What do I want my purpose to be? What do I want you know, to contribute to society? That type of stuff. At nighttime, we can take 10 minutes of deep breathing and reflection to think about the day's day that was, uh, to express gratitude for the day that was, uh, for this opportunity that we have, uh, and for our loved ones in our life. And when we have those types of thoughts, because serotonin and melatonin go up, uh, that actually can help to bring about a calm that can help people to sleep better. Uh, some people use, uh, you know, some complementary therapies uh, and or uh, supplements like melatonin uh, and or magnesium. Uh, and sometimes those help as well, um, but we do know that uh, the prescribed medications for sleep generally, all of them across the board, don't really help people to get to a deep enough sleep, uh, and so the quality uh, of sleep uh, isn't optimal with those means. Well, thank you to Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's an assistant professor of family medicine and also the medical director of integrative therapy at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. We'll talk with Dr. Sharon Brangman about the special concerns of geriatric patients during this pandemic next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Many of us have senior citizens in our lives, and during the coronavirus pandemic, there are some special concerns we need to be mindful of for their well-being. Speaking by phone with me is Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the Distinguished Service Professor and Chair of Geriatrics at Upstate and the Director of the Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease. Thank you for squeezing in HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brangman. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I understand that older people are perhaps at greater risk for this virus and with the highest fatality rate. Um, what are you telling patients and their families? So after the age of 50 or so, our immune system starts to get a little weaker. And then as you get older, your immune system becomes even more weaker. And then when you add on other medical problems, that's just another stress on your body. So that when you get exposed to a virus, whether it's the flu or something like coronavirus, that becomes a stress that can overwhelm your system, and that makes it harder to do well. So the best thing that we're telling our older patients right now is to stay home. Just don't even try. So we want them to limit their contact with people who could potentially give them the virus. Now, most of my patients are not travelers, and they are mostly localized where they stay either, you know, around the immediate area, but they may come in contact with adult children or grandchildren who have traveled. Right. And the assumption that we all have to make is that everyone has the virus, even if they don't have symptoms. And if you have that level of, of concern, then that helps you keep away from people as much as possible. So when you say, you know, no going out, does that mean no having people in as well? So you should not be inviting multiple family members over. And we have a lot of grandparents who are now wondering if they can help babysit for grandchildren who are home from school. And we do not recommend that at this time. Okay. But it's very hard to be completely isolated. So we would recommend that there's one designated person who does the interactions and comes into the home, say somebody needs help with groceries or getting errands done, only one person should be the contact. Now, what about doctor's appointments? If you're a senior citizen living at home and you've got a doctor's appointment coming up, is that something you should still try to keep? So I would recommend that all older adults who are 65 and older, but especially if you're in your 80s and older, you should call your doctor's office ahead of time and find out if that appointment is really absolutely necessary. If it is necessary, your doctor will help you make plans to carry that out in the safest way possible. But if it's not necessary, then you should try to postpone it for as long as possible, and your doctor should be able to help you make that decision. Now, would would you say that applies to dental care, um, hairdresser appointments, uh, things of that nature as well? So uh, if it's dental care, I would call the dentist and find out, again, if this is something that's absolutely necessary. So right now, you shouldn't leave your house for routine things like going to the hairdresser or the barber shop or any of those normal errands because you really want to limit your contact with people who might be carriers of this virus. So it should only be for really medical necessary reasons that someone leaves their home. Picking up prescriptions, for example, is very important. And if you don't have someone who can run that errand for you, then you might want to call ahead and find out if your prescription is ready, see if you could go early in the morning when there may be fewer people, and then do an immediate pickup of your prescriptions and head immediately home. So in other words, we don't want older people waiting in long lines or being in crowded stores, trying to maintain at least a six-foot distance around you and other people is very important, but it's very hard to control other people's movements. So it's going to be a matter of getting some assistance or being creative and getting things done in ways that we're not normally used to having it done. 
Now, uh, some stores I've heard about are offering uh, senior citizens like to come in the first hour before they open. And I, I guess that's designed to, you know, not have a big crowd there and and uh, make that available. Is that a good idea? So that's an excellent idea, and I would hope that more grocery stores and pharmacies would consider adding a kind of hour of protection for older adults to shop. The whole idea is to try to avoid crowds, especially with people who might have done some traveling. And um, having that hour where only older adults can shop quickly and go home would be ideal. Let me ask you about healthy seniors, people who maybe don't have any of those underlying illnesses, or maybe they have diabetes, but it's well-managed. Are they still at risk just because of the age and the natural decline in the immune system? So, yes, because our immune system declines as we get older, even if you're a healthy 80-year-old or a healthy 85-year-old, when your body is stressed with a big infection like this virus can cause, that usually isn't a good thing to experience. And even if you have diabetes that's well-controlled, that is still an extra stress on your body that can get in the way of having a good response when exposed to an infection like this coronavirus. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Sharon Brangman. She specializes in geriatrics, and we're talking about the potential impact of coronavirus on senior citizens. Now let's move to nursing homes. If you have a loved one in a nursing home right now, it's a pretty scary time. What can you do to help them or keep them safe? So we're very concerned about our nursing home patients because they are the frailest of all and they are least able to handle a bad infection like this coronavirus. So most nursing homes are restricting visitors at this time, and that's really to protect the older adults in the nursing home. So you're going to have to have another form of communication if you have a loved one in a nursing home, and that might mean calling them up if they're able to talk on the phone or maintaining phone contact with the nurses or other staff at the nursing home. But this is not the time to visit. Should people consider moving their loved one out of the nursing home? So that might be an option for some families, but that isn't a practical for many people because the care that someone is getting in a nursing home may be very hard for that family member, no matter how much they would love to do it. It may be just too hard for them to do. Nursing homes pay staff on three different shifts to provide this care. And when you bring a, a loved one home, you have to fill in all those details, and that can be very, very stressful. So I'm not sure that's always the best option. And right now, with nursing homes being so proactive and preventing visitors, there may be um, less worry about them getting an infection. What's your advice for helping reduce an anxiety level in someone who's older and they're in a nursing home and they're anxious about this? Is there anything that their loved ones can do to help? I mean, they can't be there in person. So this is where we have to rely on the nursing home staff to kind of be our, our stand-ins in these situations and reassure the patient. And I'm also concerned about people out in the community who may be feeling very isolated and so I would like us to figure out ways to reach out to older adults and help them from being so isolated, whether they can help them FaceTime or Skype or talk to them on the phone or drop off food in a way that helps you maintain that distance between them, maybe leaving the food outside their door or on their porch or something like that or helping them run errands. I think that even though we're maintaining physical distance, we should try to just double our efforts to call people and make sure we're in contact with them and see if they have any needs that we can help them meet. You mentioned meals, and I just wanted to point out that Onondaga County has an emergency meals hotline for seniors. It's 315-218-1987. 
um, if they're in a situation where, you know, they need some help getting meals delivered to their home. I also wanted to ask you, how does a person um, with dementia deal with a situation like this? Are they aware of sort of a heightened anxiety level in people? So my experience with patients with dementia really depends on what stage of dementia they have. People with mild dementia may still have an awareness to realize that something is wrong. But even people with advanced dementia can often sense the emotions of the people around them and kind of absorb that anxiety, even though they may not be able to speak about it or remember the details of it from day to day. They can feel that anxiety or that emotion around them. So it's really important to make sure that if you're working with somebody who has any type of dementia or memory problem, that you try to give them information in very small bits that help, but don't layer in all the extra fear and worry because there's nothing they can really do about it. And this just can make them feel more um, anxious and, and um, feel more uneasy. And that's something that we have to try to shield from our older patients who have dementia. I know we cannot reverse the hands of, of time, um, but if the immune system naturally diminishes as a person ages, is there anything we can do as we age to sort of boost our immune system? Or is there anything we can do now to improve our, our body's ability to fight the virus? So that is a very complex question, and it depends on every different individual. But in general, exercise is one of the best things to do to help your immune system, good sleep, and a healthy diet. And these are things that you have to work on ahead of time so that you're building it up. It can be a little hard to do it now on the short term. But in general, those are some of the things that we can do to kind of help our bodies stay safe and fight things that come from the outside world that can cause infection. And those are things, even as we're sort of isolating or, or keeping ourselves away from one another, healthy diet is something we can try to maintain, right? So that's where some older adults may need help with a healthy diet. And even if you're home and you can't maybe take a walk um, as easily as you might have been able to in the past, you should try to get up and walk around your house as much as possible every hour or so. It is still okay to take a walk outside if you're walking with someone who's already in your household. If you're walking with someone who's not in your household, you have to do that with a six feet uh, distance between you. So let's review what information is most important. What can people do to reduce their risk? So in order to reduce your risk, it is probably a very good idea for people who are 65 and older to stay home. We don't want people to have contact with others out in the community right now because we don't know where the virus may be, and we know that some people can be spreading the virus without having outward symptoms of their own. If they start to notice any symptoms, and that could be an achiness, a fever, a runny nose, a cough, if there's any signs of things that may feel like an allergy that they no don't normally have or a bad cold that they wouldn't expect to have, they should call their primary care physician. And that physician or nurse practitioner, whoever is their provider, can help them make a decision on the best next steps. And because they fall into a higher-risk category, they, they may need to act more urgently than someone who was younger with those exactly. same kinds of symptoms. So this is something that if you have a concern, you would want to help get um, identification or, or um, some diagnosis of the symptoms as soon as possible. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the Distinguished Service Professor and Chair of Geriatrics at Upstate and the Division Chief of the Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, 
with this week's selection. Richard Wu is a recent graduate of the University of Texas at Dallas. He writes, paints, and composes at the intersection of art and medicine. His poem, Hospital Moongazers, reminds us that healing can incorporate cultural traditions as well as medical treatments. Hospital Moongazers. On mid-autumn festival, I brought you mooncakes, and we nibbled them together in your hospital room, our mouths flecked with crumbs like the stars strewn across the night sky. We ignored the beeping machines and the smell of disinfectant and the doctors and nurses shuffling outside, but we watched the moon glinting through the window, a full moon, yellow and engorged as if it had gotten hungry and eaten up the entire sun. We could see the moonlight sprinkled over the ground before your bed, the color of early morning frost. And so you said, I'm thinking of a poem. And I smiled and said, quiet night thought. And then we both bowed our heads, thinking of home. Upstate's HealthLink on Air brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show or to hear interviews on other health topics, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.